Hello there. You're listening to the Quarter to Three Games Podcast for May 2013. It is now officially, at least in movie time, it is officially summer. My name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not Thief 3. Oh, and I'm uh, Jason McMaster, and my game of the week is not Door Fortress. And my name is Andy Schatz, and my game of the week is not drinking games while watching season three of Laverne and Shirley. Oh, well, yeah, I tend to think that that's way better done for season two. Once they hit season three, downhill. Oh, downhill. Jump Sellouts. Yeah. Jump the shark before jumping the shark was even a thing. That's right, exactly. Before Happy Days even managed it. Uh-huh, exactly. <laughs> They're such a hipsters with that jumping the shark stuff. Andy, one of the, that you have just revealed now that you're probably around about my age. I had no idea. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, Andy, you are uh, you have joined us today because uh, you've forced me to waste a lot of time lately with a game you guys just released called Monaco. Monaco, Monaco, I'm going to pronounce it. Uh, what's yours is mine. Uh, and the developer, you guys are called, I believe, Pocket Watch Games. Did I get that right? right. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. If Andy, I was to meet you at like a uh, at E3 or something, and you give me your business card, what does it say on that business card? Is your title? It says owner. Uh, I am the only current. Uh, actual full-time employee of Pocket Watch Games, um, uh, although Andy Wynn um, is essentially a, a full-time contractor on the on uh, Monaco, um, and uh, I've been running Pocket Watch Games for eight and a half years now. So I think that means my business, um, well, I, it escaped near certain death several times, but it, now it does appear that I uh, am going to be capable of uh, surviving for the near future. So basically, it sounds like your boss might know what he's doing after all. <laughs> yeah, it's we. I've been putting faith in my boss for eight and a half years. <laughs> and he keeps selling me this bullshit about how eventually it's going to work, and how eventually we're going to make some money, how eventually I'm going to get paid. And, and sometimes, uh, sometimes they come through, don't they? Yeah, yeah. I was, I was starting to have my doubts. <laughs> now, Andy, I did not know this. I mean, you, you said you've been going for uh, eight and a half years. All those eight and a half years were not spent making Monaco. No. Uh, what? Uh, and I, I was a little uh, surprised to look at the website for Pocket Watch and see the name of a game where my first reaction was, "Huh, I think I want to play that." <laughs> uh, you guys did something called Wildlife Tycoon. Yeah, um, that was my first game as an indie. I made that in 2005, um, and uh, it took me 10 months to build it. I'd actually I quit my job. I was working at another company that was largely doing like contracts for EA and and you know working on shit games for big companies. Um, uh, and um, I quit my job thinking, you know, the game industry's broken, and I want to go to business school, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to change the world and change how game des- game development is done. Um, and I ended up getting rejected from all the business schools, thank God. Um, and uh, um, but why did uh, why, how do you get rejected from a business school, by the way? Well, you have to apply to these sorts of things. Like, and they can I, say no. Yeah, well, I, come on. I was I applied to like top flight entrepreneurial business schools thinking that I was hot shit. Um, Isn't there some, like, vocational school in Irvine that would have taken you? Probably, but I didn't want to go to a vocational school. (laughs) 
I wanted to. I, I thought that I was. Uh, I thought I was the next big thing, as as many people do. Um, well, well, fortunately for us, they did reject you. So what yeah, happened? What do we so think? Any, yeah. So I was. I had like nine months bef- between when I quit my job and when I thought I was going to be going to to classes. So I started building this game, and it actually got nominated for the grand prize of the IGF um, that year. And, uh, you know, it picked up, it got picked up by a, a retail publisher and got, you know, I boxed copies of this thing. And, and, uh, yeah, it was, the concept was that it was, um, you know, it's a, it's an interesting game design experiment. Um, I wanted to, um, uh, build an actual simulation of how ecosystems worked, although it's was, it was very gamey, so it's not like right. super accurate or anything like that. But it always bugged me that like you play Zoo Tycoon and and you spend more of your time worrying about you know how how efficient the janitors are at picking up poop or like you know how many hot dogs you're selling rather than the things that you really care about in a zoo, which are like the fucking cool tigers. Right, well, but you have to like you have to like paint a little patchwork terrain in the cage for the tiger. Like it's got three squares of savanna, right. two squares of water, and one square of rock, and that reflects the majesty of nature. And <laughs> well, it really is if you think about it. So yeah, I mean, I, I I went into it thinking to myself, this is back in like the casual game boom, um, mm-hmm. and thinking to myself. Uh, you know, I will. I'll, I'm going to take this concept of Zoo Tycoon and and really focus on what people really enjoy about it, uh, which is animals. And and I I enjoy just being outside. And you know, I'm a bird watcher and spend a lot of time outside and, and uh, traveling. Um, or used to spend a lot of time traveling when I had money. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, I always found that fascinating and really ripe um, for game mechanics because there's so many game mechanics that underlie the idea of an ecosystem or there's mechanics in general that underlie ecosystems ecosystems are built on mechanics that i figured i could turn those into actual game mechanics now i want this to be a a monaco podcast because boy do i have a lot i want to say about this but i'm dying to know what what is the basic gameplay premise for a wildlife tycoon if you're not just making little boxy zoo cages you know that's such a gamey system. At any rate, uh, how can you how can you build a game out of this idea of wildlife ecosystems? Well, it's a it's a um, essentially unidirectional uh, or, or it's a it's a back and forth between can I afford animals and can I afford food for these animals? So mm-hmm. you're essentially you're starting with an empty savanna with some watering holes and you're placing a few animals down and then you have to place them in locations that are are sustainable for them and then once they start breeding. You, uh, it essentially gives you currency in order to create more food. Um, but you, you have to be careful not to, to, you have to be careful essentially to create balanced or ecosystems that are self-sustaining in fact, and in fact, uh, um, uh, autonomously growing. So you have to be careful you don't put too many lions down or they'll eat the whole zebra herd and then the lions will die because they'll have no food left. Um, Is, was it as cute and stylized as Monaco? No, it, it was, I mean, the graphics were all, it, uh, it, you'll play, and in fact, Venture Arctic. I made a follow-up to it called Venture Arctic, which I really took it on in a totally different way because I, because Arctic ecosystems deal with things entirely, or the mechanics that drive an Arctic ecosystem are totally different from an mm-hmm. African ecosystem. So that game is very much about like you are the sort of god of the weather, but but the current the price of each of your weather tools that you use 
is dependent upon the season. So you have this constantly uh, rotating season in which, and, and I also, in that game, I wasn't like punishing people for death because death is actually sort of a part of the cycle of life. Up ah, in right. Um, and that when, and with the Inuit believe that when something dies, their, their spirit goes into the earth. And so the currency is, is that essentially you collect these animal spirits when they do die. See, so, so the idea there was that like you kind of want your animals to die sometimes so you get more currency in order to build more stuff. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. You'll, you'll try it out. I think that, um, venture, Ar- venture Africa is a little slow to get going. It appealed pretty well to a younger demographic, uh, pr- particularly because of the animals. And I think I accomplished something pretty interesting and fun for my first attempt at games on my own. Um, are these still available anywhere? Yeah, you can get them. In fact, I'm probably going to start giving them away for free. Um, uh, but but if somebody's interested, I mean, you've sold me. I, I, this makes me want to see what you've done. If I go to, is it pocketwatchgames.com? Or is yeah, there a place? pocketwatchgames.com. You see, there's some download links on, on pocketwatchgames.com. All right. Uh, I want to play multiplayer with McMaster of Wildlife Tycoon. Uh, McMaster, <laughs> I'm going to control all the lions. You're going to uh, be uh, the gazelles. Okay, cool. And cool. we'll see who wins. <laughs> uh, Probably and, uh, me. I mean, I'm just saying uh, you can have lions. I mean, it's not if it's not an RTS. I think I'm okay. Uh, McMaster, I've seen Life of Pi. I know what happens when uh, the top of the food chain is thrown into an arena with the middle of the food chain. Bad a pl- guy. A plucky adventure. <laughs> a plucky adventure with bad CGI. By the way, Andy, you can't say bad. Do you really think that Life of Pi had bad CGI? No. No, no, no. I actually think that that uh, Life of Pi had some of the most ambitious CG that I've ever seen, and about a third of it got too ambitious and kind of fell on its face. Um, but about two thirds of it was some of the best CG I've ever seen. Okay, um, well, as as a guy who's actually done Andy, like I, I sort of feel your opinion on this is more valuable than the average opinion because you have presumably rendered tigers in a video game. <laughs> what do you, I'm going to give you a quiz. Uh, I'm going to tell you three scenes from Life of Pi. Right. One of them uses a real tiger. I want you to tell me, as best as you can recall, which of those scenes is, scenes oh, wow. is the real okay. tiger. Go for it. Okay, you ready for this? Yeah. Okay, there's the scene early on when uh, when Richard Parker emerges from a cage and comes up That's to the fake. boy. Well, don't, you don't give away your answer yet, Andy. You might want to change your answer. All right. Okay, so there's that scene. Uh, don't say not whether or not you think it's fake yet. There's the scene where Richard Parker gets knocked in the water and uh, Pi feels uh, empathy for him and rescues him from drowning. Yep. Pretty sure. And then there's the scene. Uh, uh, Andy, save your answers until <laughs> the question. I was Alex Trebek, Andy. I would be drumming you off the game show right about now. Uh, and then there's the scene where they uh, where where uh, he's washed up on the beach, I think in Mexico or whatever, at the end, and Richard Parker walks off into the trees. So Richard Parker walking off into the trees from the beach, Richard I- Parker trying to climb onto the boat out of the water, and Richard Parker in a tiger cage. One I of those have- was used- okay. Well, one of those was using a real tiger. Which I actually it? have uh, um, a fairly good image in my mind of each of those three scenes, and I do believe that the one where he's in the water uh, is the one. The, the last two, the last one actually is pretty good, but he's much farther away. Um, and uh, my suspicion is, and this guess. This guess is, is is partially just due to the, the circumstances of the CGU. Probably in terms of the wet fur and and uh, um, getting all the the motion right of the the swimming and everything. Although I don't know if they would think that that was a um, that was a cruel thing. It's, you know they are sensitive about that. 
my guess is the water uh, Mexico would be the second my second my second guess. Okay, uh, Andy, I don't want to play this game with you anymore. I'm going to have McMaster play it now because <laughs> you're no fun. Why would you guess the water? Everybody thinks the water is the fake one. No, because uh, well, for for two reasons. One is that it's a scene that's different from everything else. Um, and so if it's, if it's something that's the same as everything else, then it's likely that they're using the same tool set. Right, right. It's going to be easy for them. The second thing is the water sheen on the, um, on the, the fur is going to be something that's going to be a, a little harder to get right. Uh, the motion in general, we don't really know. You know, your average person probably doesn't know what it looks like to, to see a cat swimming. Um, so my guess is that that's a, that's another clue. And then just my recollection of it, it, that that part looked genuinely real. And of all of the scenes, um, the the expressions and everything felt faker in in a lot of the other scenes. Um, okay, so, well I I should have yeah. known better than to try to play this game with a programmer. That's just <laughs> bad move on my part. Uh, McMaster, if I played this game with you, would you have gotten it right? Uh, I haven't seen it. Oh, well, so I, I probably would have beat you with this, McMaster, then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would have a 33% chance. That's a good point, yes. So I, I like to think of it as you would have had a 66% chance of losing. Right, right. <laughs> uh, all right, so uh, Wildlife Tycoon available at Pocket Watch Games. You've certainly uh, intrigued me. But I have to say, Andy, uh, a lot of what intrigues me about Wildlife Tycoon is how much I freaking love Monaco. Cool, yeah. Uh, so you, first of all, uh, you must be... Did you know that it was going to be as adored as, as it is? I mean, I, I've seen nothing but praise for this thing. Did you did you expect this? Did you know it was this special? Were you on tenterhooks releasing it? Did you think people were going to say, this game sucks? Um, how do you feel about the reception? Uh, amazingly. Uh, just absolutely amazingly. And this, I mean... I was I was ready to puke before it came out. I I like I literally I developed a case of the shingles this week from stress, which is like adult chicken pox when your immune system has been depressed because so just you're from under, nerves, just from being worried about from nerves. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So I have like I'm I'm like not disgustingly blistered and like my nerve endings are like on fire right now talking to you, and they probably would be anyways because talking to you is a little bit of a painful thing, but. Uh, <laughs> Oh snap! Uh, no snap! No, uh, um, no. I, I was ready to puke about it. Um, uh, I know. So our our strategy all along was that if we make one person's favorite game they've ever played, then we're likely to ha- be uh, we're likely to be a a game that enough people really enjoy in order to make the whole thing worth it. Um, and and but what you don't know really is how you know. When you do that, when you follow that, and, and that's, a, I think, a pretty good sort of philosophy to follow as an indie because you don't have, we don't have to appeal to the mass market. In fact, it, we're probably better off if we don't appeal to the mass market. We want to appeal to a, a, a smaller market that the, um, that the, you know, the big companies are afraid to approach because it doesn't initially appear to be that big. And then if it really connects with people, then, uh, then, you know, the sky's the limit. Mm-hmm. And so I, I knew that there were some people that that absolutely loved Monaco, and we've been to PAX a few times, and we know that people come and, and really enjoy the game. Um, but did I expect that we were going to, you know, that that three quarters of our reviews are going to be like nines and tens and that kind of thing? No, we did not expect that. We definitely expected a lot more um, people to be dismissive of it for the graphics. Uh, we expected. Um, uh, you know, for we, so many people have given us the benefit of the doubt with that first half hour or hour of barrier of entry and have really gotten into the game. And then not only that, like 
one of the things that we really tried to stress to reviewers before they played the game, and and it, it appears, at least from a lot of the reviews, that people really sort of felt the same way that we did about it, is that it's not a stealth game. It's not. It's not. Or it, it, it uses a lot of the language of a stealth game. Uses a lot of the. It pulls a lot of mechanics from a stealth game. But you should go into it thinking about it not as a as a genre game, but but something on its own. And and when you do that, and you kind of let go, and you just take it for what it's for what it is, and and enjoy it for what it is. I think that uh, people are just really connecting with it. So so yeah. I, in that sense, I think we're really lucky that everyone gave us the benefit of the doubt. There's probably a myriad of games out there that were released. That had 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 you know reviewers given these other games the benefit the same amount of uh, um, uh, faith that they offered to us uh, they would be maybe just as beloved as, as Monaco is. I think part of what you guys did really well to make it to not scare people off and make people think oh it's just a self game mm-hmm. uh, early on it becomes kind of clear that uh, you know it's okay if you screw up the stealth it's okay if um, you. You know, you, you you don't have to play a perfect mission. You know, mm-hmm. failing stealth is not a fail state. Um, right. And that's something that I think a lot of stealth games, all the way from, like, Splinter Cell to the Dishonored recently, have had to come to terms with, is right. stealth, stealth often fails. People mm-hmm. will see you, so then what do you do with the game from that point? And I think you guys have a great handle on... You know, hey, it's still awesomely fun to play and, and to run around and to try to hide again, even when you get busted. Uh, yep. It's sort of like a movie about a heist that goes off flawlessly would be a boring movie. Yep. You, you have to build into your gameplay just like a you movie. You've got to have a car chase. Traumatic. Exactly. You've got to have a car chase. You've got to have the, the, the heisters almost blowing it or getting caught yep. exactly. or the psycho ruining their cover or yep. the, the, the astute detective uh, – Catching on to what they're doing, yeah, it's got to. A and then good at the last moment, pull them, at the last moment, you pull some clever move, and everything works out in the end. You yeah, know? yeah. Although my clever moves tend to be just like smashing grabs, just like, oh geez, there's the last thing, just run, run, everybody run, everybody to the car, get to the car, McMaster, don't get that coin, McMaster to the car. Like that's kind of how the game works for me. Um, I don't know if you've uh, gotten all the way to the very last level of. The, I don't think many people have gotten to the very last level of the second campaign. Mm-hmm. But there is, um, uh, I don't want to spoil, the, I, I won't spoil the story side of it, Okay. but in the very, very last level, we literally give you a straight path from the where you spawn to the exit, um, <laughs> but and we let you see that all of the coins are in the area that is really, really dangerous. But there's no reason you have to go get those coins. You can literally, on the last level, you can literally walk out of it without aggroing a single guard, just literally walking down the hallway. Um, and uh, that temptation of going and making sure and picking up all that stuff and smashing and grabbing and getting as much as you can is the whole point of the whole thing. That at that last time when you're like, dude, the car's right there. Yeah, but I gotta get this last coin, you know. And then it turns into, and then of course the guy fucks up, and of course the whole crowd of guards is chasing you at that point. And then of course the guy dies in the middle of the ballroom, in the middle of the lasers that are gonna set off the machine guns, you know. Uh, I want to do a, a brief bit of performance art I have prepared. Uh, here is, I, I generally, I haven't done a lot of Let's Plays and stuff, um, but this is a podcast, so of course we don't have video. So this is a Let's Play using only audio. So I want to play, uh, McMaster, you've played some Monaco, I've played some Monaco. Here's my Let's Play of Monaco. Here's when I play what it goes like. 
see me moving along, playing the game. I'm really sneaky. I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm usually playing the redhead. It's a little sexy. Now, McMaster also plays Monaco. Here's McMaster. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> He keeps that on tap. He just like <laughs> I've been associated with uh, Yakety Sack so many times at this point. <laughs> and of course, he's the mole. He's just sort of running around digging through walls. Oh, that's that's McMaster for you. It's crime time, motherfuckers. That's, that's, God, that is that is pretty accurate. I, I'm impressed. I love being the mole and just, like, blasting through walls. Okay, see, here's the thing. I cannot stand – I love that you put him in there, Andy, but yeah. I can't freaking stand the mole because it, you, you guys put in a character that breaks this awesome level design that you've created. Why would you do that to your beautiful game? <laughs> because there's people just like McMaster that want to do that, that get such a laugh out of being like, yeah, oh, yes. I, do what, I do what I want. You aren't the boss of me. <laughs> Yeah, you're basically letting people, and that you are the company. That's that's people playing the mole. That's what they're saying to you, Andy Shots. They're saying that to you, the level designer, the creators of the game. Uh, well, I'm. I, I want to hear some about uh, the the thinking that went into these eight characters, because part of what I love about the game is I, I think any game with that kind of asymmetry. I know that that asymmetry is working when I, at various times, feel that any particular character is overpowered. Like, I, I can, if I play a game and I only think one character is overpowered, that to me means, okay, there's probably a problem here. If I play a game and I variously think that every single character is overpowered, I think you're doing something right. So that can't have been easy to get right, Andy. We, uh, we do hear that, you know, we hear it all the time where people say, oh, like, these two, three characters are overpowered, but every single person tells us different characters are overpowered. <laughs> There's, there is, I, we never get any sort of consistency in terms of who, th you know, who is the best character. And I think a big part of that is that we designed the characters around player styles rather than around trying to balance them against one another. Um, and then those styles tend to be um, uh, uh, more effective or less effective in each particular level at the same time. Um, so, uh, you know, if, if you think about um, uh, Monaco characters in terms of their World of Warcraft, in terms of World of Warcraft uh, classes, the hacker is like the warlock, right? He's got, um, he spent essentially a bunch of disposable pets, whereas the pickpocket is the hunter. He's got a single pet that he cares about, and you have to, you know, have to spend time managing that pet. Um, and then uh, um, you have your, your locksmith, who's sort of your, you know, your tank or your paladin, or um, he has sort of the uh, more um, sort of simple um, uh, passive abilities. Um, and and and, and, that, and you just made me realize I didn't even realize this, and she's the one I've been playing mostly. Uh, the redhead is she's a mez class, and she reses people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I didn't even think of it that way. Thanks, Randy, for putting everything in World of Warcraft Wait. terms for me. <laughs> well, yeah, we wanted the redhead. The redhead is partially designed in order to be. A, she's she's definitely the most complex character in terms of her. Um, uh, we you know we we graphed these out in terms of um, uh, passive versus active thought and and um, skill versus strategy. What what type of skill do you actually have to have with the controller um, versus? Uh, you know how complex they are from a strategic perspective, and we wanted ones. We wanted characters that were not at all complex. Like the locksmith is is the least complex and the least skill based, and that's why he's the first character because he's he's you know someone that you can just use, and he instantly seems like oh yeah that'll be that guy will be useful. Um, 
and then uh, all the way up to the redhead that requires the most skill and, and often requires the most strategy. Um, and, uh, you know, different types of thinking for each character. The, the cleaner really, people think of the cleaner, oh, he's, he's an attacking class, so you think that he's someone who, who's violent, but really he's the rogue. He's the guy who has to sneak up behind people. He's actually the guy who has to be sneakiest of all of the people. Right, uh, right. Because he's useless on what he's seen. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's um, uh, we we design them we design them around player personalities largely. Um, the mole the mole is actually a really fun one because the mole is the character that we designed for trolls for people that like to for people <laughs> for people that just like to troll people and grief people. Um, and uh, we wanted to give people a positive outlet for their griefing. <laughs> uh, McMaster, I don't know if you could tell, but let me just translate what Andy basically just said is that I'm I'm really smart. <laughs> As the guy who plays the redhead, I don't. I don't know if you got that, McMaster. I just wanted to make that clear to you. Um, uh, what uh, I, I think a lot of it too, Andy, of course, is the interplay with the different levels. Like different levels have different styles. There are levels where I start playing with, you know, the lock picker, whomever, and I think to myself, oh, geez, I clearly should have brought the hacker here, or oh, this is a level for the gentleman. Um, like it definitely feels like there's so much personality in the character, but a lot of that personality has to do with the personality of the level design. Um, so tell me a bit about uh, how you guys approach. Like, the levels, I, I keep thinking, oh, they've run out of cool ideas, and then I get to the next level, and I'm like, oh, well, that's just precious. Um, <laughs> you guys must have uh, had a great time coming up with uh, locales and, and designing these maps and putting in some of the detail. Uh, I, I can only imagine that must have been a hoot to, to do. Yeah, uh, so I so I worked on a project alone for the past for the first like year and a half or so, and then Andy Wynn came onto the project for um, uh, the the remaining two years on the project, and he um, was the the uh, level builder. Um, I, I came up with the, the the concepts of all the levels, uh, and you know had the whole sort of campaign laid out, and then he actually just went and built them. Um, we it was fun actually. We started. Um, basically by, t- by trying to take as many real locations inside of Monaco and, and Monte Carlo as possible and then actually use Google satellite views in order to pull the footprints <laughs> to some of these places. Um, and, uh, you know, basically it's, it's so much easier to design puzzles within the, you know, the first, the first step to z- designing any of these levels is, and this is something I think that someone who just sits down to design a level for the first time, and we've seen this with people using our, 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 editor, which is we're kind of alpha testing right now, um, the first time people sit down to use it, they want to make traps and puzzles. And it, it generally isn't the right way to go about building a level. It's actually better to go about thinking about it as a place first and building the architecture and the flow in the same way that you would if you were at literally designing a house. Um, because you design houses in order to flow in a certain way and to feel good and to feel intuitive in a way that you can understand subconsciously without even really thinking about it. And, and giving it that sense of place is, is really important, too, because you don't want it to just be a bunch of hallways. Cause then, you, then you essentially just have Doom or a roguelike or whatever. Um, so well, I love that I'll be walking around and I'll stumble into a bathroom, for instance. And I'm like, yeah. oh, yeah, of course, a bathroom would go here. I mean, it makes perfect sense. It definitely feels like... Uh, a real place like you're discovering. Uh, I yeah. About it. yeah. Yeah. And and then uh, so so yeah, it was it was really fun to be able to use the real locations like a real night the 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 nightclub which is probably my favorite level in the game is based on uh, um, a nightclub called Jimmy's with a Z um, in uh, in Monte Carlo and and um, uh, 
uh, you know, the casino is, is similar. They've got a little opera house inside it. In fact, we were going to have a whole separate opera, um, level, but then we realized that the famous opera house is actually just sort of, uh, part of the, the famous casino there. So we, we built it into that level. Um, but well, I will uh, say, lucky for you, uh, the folks in, in, uh, is it the Lebanese or the Libyan embassy? Lebanese, Lebanese. Lebanese. Oh, I was going to say the Libyans are a bit too busy to complain about uh, <laughs> you modeling their embassy, but it is Lebanon, isn't it? It right. is Lebanon. Yeah, there are three embassies in in Monaco. One of them is the Lebanese one. And my my wife is half Lebanese, so uh, that was clearly the uh, the one we had to use. Uh, when I was playing with my dopey friends, one of them misread it as the lesbian embassy. <laughs> Speaking of which, by the way, Andy, yes. uh, there's a pretty sultry moment between the redhead and the lookout yes. partway through the game. Does that does that affect your your uh, your rating, your MPA or not MPAA, your ESRB rating? <laughs> uh, uh, the redhead is willing to uh, do whatever it takes in order to get what she wants. I understand. Um, yeah. I will say that, and I think the lookout is a little bit uh, was was not uh, is not uh, expecting that moment and that little moment in the story. You you read the story. You actually oh, read the story. Well, you know what? <laughs> well, what? I, normally I was you know normally I wouldn't do that sort of thing, Andy. Uh, but I think where it really hooked me is when I rescued the hacker. And I was yeah. like, oh look, they're doing this is actually cute and funny and. I want to read it. But I think more what it comes down to, Andy, is when I play a game and I get invested in the gameplay mechanics, that makes me want to see, well, let's see what kind of little fiction or narrative they're doing around this. Yeah. Uh, and I love you're doing this kind of like usual suspects thing with the different perspectives on the, the remix levels. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying the story quite a bit. Cool. Yeah. All right. It was something that I... I I really struggled with. Um, I always sort of had faith in myself that I could do it, but it was definitely the the thing that I was the biggest challenge for me. And just because I'm not like you know I'm not a professional author, and and uh, um, it's the sort of thing you have to practice. You know, like any artistic skill, if you don't practice it, it's not something that's just going to to you know come to you unless you're uh-huh. a genius. Um, uh, which of course I am, but uh. <laughs> well, right, that goes without saying. But to be fair, though, Andy, the the story is spare enough. Like you, you're not doing elaborate cutscenes, no, and no. I don't think any of them are more than you, you know ten, twelve lines of dialogue. Like uh, right. you, you have a sense of economy, and you don't seem full of your own self-importance <laughs> as far I, as I, the I story goes. Yeah, yeah I I did try and I I spent a lot of time editing it down to the very bare minimum of what needed to be said in order to make sure the story gets across with enough like cute characterization in there um uh so that and i tried to to sort of the presentation of it was was built to be something where it's like if you want to skip it you just skip it but if you're waiting in a lobby for three more people to join it's there for you ah right Uh, right. so now now i I do have a question as far as uh some of the writing in the game goes um when i when i talk about the game do i really have to call it uh, Monaco, what's yours? No. It's mine. No. <laughs> I, can, I can just drop that second part. That's okay. You can just say Monaco. It's cool. <laughs> why, why, why is that? Why? Why is that there? <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I don't. You know, it's funny. I uh, I decided at the last minute to add it in there because um, uh, I thought that it would help um, people search for it because it's hard to find things just by searching for Monaco. Uh, yes. Um, and. Uh, and I don't know if you noticed the 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 hullabaloo about P4 and the tagline that they're using, um, but P4 uh, is using the tagline, "What's yours is mine." Um, Are you serious? 
Oh, like for their advertising, not the actual name of the game. No, but it is the advertising tagline, yes. And there was a bit of a uh, hullabaloo about it that, that we ended up, you know, generally working out. But um, uh, and I wrote a, a little note on the, the Monaco Facebook page about it if, you, if anyone wants to get more details on uh, on exactly what went down when I dis- – when I – they, they uh, you know – they had their first teaser trailer on March 26th or something like that, and I just about lost my shit. Um, but, uh, now, uh, you, uh, so, so you also, I, I feel that What's Yours and Mine does accomplish, even though I'm like, I just like it being cute and called Monaco. It does make it clear that it's not a Grand Prix racing game. Yeah, that is the other thing that we, that uh, I don't remember specifically, you know, the, the, Basically, we got to the point where it's like, okay, we need to put up our official product pages now. Are we going to call this thing just Monaco, or you know, are we comfortable with that? And uh, I thought that there was um, uh, not really enough broad knowledge out there in the public of what the game was that if you just saw something called Monaco, that uh, it wouldn't give you any hint as to what the game was. I mean, it could be it could be like a gambling casino game, where yeah. one of those cheapies like slot machine games on in, the iPhone. In fact, what that's actually, I was worried that people, more people would think that than, and certainly the, people would either think it was a racing game or a gambling game, and cer- they certainly wouldn't think it was a heist game. Um, so. Although to be fair, Andy, uh, Monaco, what's yours is mine, does have elements of racing and gambling. <laughs> you know, you got to weigh that risk reward. You've got to do things quickly. Uh, yeah. Uh, tell me about the evolution of one of the things that I love is that there are coins around the level. They're randomly distributed. Uh, your score at the end of the, the level, score, quote, unquote, is the time it took you to accomplish it. But every coin you don't pick up adds to your time. Um, that, that, to me, is this brilliant balance of, you know, you've got to hurry and get through it, but you also want to be thorough. Uh, how did that evolve? We, uh, at one point, um, probably a year ago, we were testing out, um, th- ha- actually having three different objective types, um, one of which was a, um, uh, a speed run um, uh, version. And that w- in that version, it was three seconds per coin you didn't get. So you wanted instead of ten seconds. So there was definitely incentive to picking up the coins, but for the most part, you wanted to run in, get the trophy, and get out. So any, trof- any coin that would take you more than three Three seconds to get wasn't worth it, basically. Um, and uh, um, that was basically the smash and grab mode. And then there was a, uh, a, a silence mode, basically, that, that punished you for, for being seen or for dying. And then there was just 100% mode. How fast can you get 100% of the coins? Um, and what we found, or what, what we discovered when we were trying to design for this, is that we thought to ourselves, you know, when you play online, and you get online and you just play with random people of the public... What happens if you want to play in a particular style, and yet, um, and yet they aren't, you know, going along with you? You know, because we knew that when you get online, there was going to be people that are just going to be running around, you know, as the mole, just running around making a mess. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be a, you know, no matter what we did, that was always going to be end up being a frustrating thing. So we decided that it was best to essentially take a single play style and um, focus the initial community around that play style. And so so we, we tried to take the elements of each of those things that were most fun um, and and sort of incorporate all of them. So there's definitely still, like, that feeling of speedrun. And I really hope this, the speedrun communities out there get into Monaco because I freaking love it as a speedrun game. 
um, and it's not your typical speedrun. I've, he- I've had heard a lot of people say, I have never been into speedrunning before, but this is the first time it actually is fun for me, or even like, you know, time attack or score scores and things like that. Um, so, yeah, we tried to really sort of uh, focus everything basically on this sort of single play style. And really there's two different play styles. There's, there's the very casual version of the play style, which is, I don't care if I get 100% of the coins and I'm just right. playing the game to play it. And then there's the sort of advanced play style, which is getting 100% of the coins. Well, you uh, also casually, not casually, but you sort of uh, uh, obliquely nudge people towards 100%ing things by right. making it clear that, hey, you, you're going to get this mission after you clear out all the coins in, in so many, in X number of missions above. Like right. you're, you're, you're nudging people. Not not too overtly, but you're definitely nudging people to doing that hundred percenting. And when I've played online with just um, random people, which is easy enough, and it's been great to just have people drop in, you can tell early on whether or not somebody wants to get all the coins. Right. Uh, and I kind of like that. It's sort of like, okay, I've gotten at the exit, and I'm going to loiter here. Oh, he's going and getting those coins. Okay, I guess this is going to be a thorough yeah, run. Yeah. 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 Uh, and and you know, nobody has to chat and say, you know. Please get coins. You know, it, it right. becomes clear. It's like a little obvious bit of like body language based on what yeah. other people are doing. Yeah, but um, imagine, you know, imagine if we had three different game styles or gameplay styles in there. Right. Then at that point, it, you can't do it anymore. You know, you have to you have to start doing things like advertising your game session to right. be this particular style, and that's just, that's no good. And uh, that's part of. I mean, it's it's so unified. It's just this great, neat, tidy little package that yeah. the same mechanics apply no matter how I'm playing, and it's just which mechanics do I feel like focusing on this time yep. uh, and, and i love that yeah cool yeah I'm, I'm glad you appreciate it a lot of thought went into it, uh, really getting that right uh what was the basic inspiration for this how, how do you go from a wildlife tycoon <laughs> to uh monaco uh i actually designed this game back in 2003 when i was working for tko software um we were in a lull between contracts, and I went to my boss and I said, I have some game concepts that I'd like to bring in. Can I use the team to prototype them? And they said, yeah, sure. So I got in my contract that I still owned the concepts if they if they didn't end Good. up making them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this originally was a sort of bigger concept, um, the idea being that it was, it was almost the Sims cross with Monaco in that you, were, you would build your own mansion, stick your stuff in it, and then break into <laughs> other people's mansions and steal their stuff. Um, and uh, actually, Jason Roars recently put out a game very right. similar to this concept called The Castle Doctrine, which is really neat. And uh, um, uh, Jason's a fucking cloner. Um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, no, it's a really, really neat idea, and he really focused on it, whereas, you know, obviously my, my game uh, has a, a, a sort of greater focus on the, the co-op side of things. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, we even we put the prototype together. We even pitched it to Microsoft back then, but then, you know, another contract comes in, and, and we end up, you know, doing the real work, the paid work at that point. And uh, I didn't pick it back up again um, when I went indie because I thought to myself, you know, I had these wildlife games, and I had, you know, a small but 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 existent fan base of people that I just didn't think would be interested in this game. They wanted more uh, venture games. Um and, you know, I was working on, before I started working on Monaco, I was working on a game called Venture Dinosauria that I, it was dinosaurs, so I wanted to portray dinosaurs as they really lived in their ecosystems. I wanted to portray dinosaurs as animals, which I don't feel like anyone's actually ever done before. Like, how does, how does T-Rex pee? You know what I mean? And, um... <laughs> well, I think that's... that's... The, the dinosaurs are monsters, Andy. You're just supposed to shoot... Exactly! Them. 
Exactly. No one, everyone thinks of dinosaurs as monsters. No one thinks of that, about them as animals. But I think it would be a really interesting thing to see a game that treats dinosaurs as animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I'd worked on this game for like a year and had an employee but had to lay him off because I was kind of running out of money. And I just couldn't find, you know, they, they call it finding the fun. And I could, couldn't find the fun in this game. I, and I was like, well, I'm not going to move forward with this thing unless it's really magical because Venture Arctic hadn't done very well and I'd had to go on and I did contract work for a year in order to, you know, you know, build the coffers back up, that kind of thing. So I had taken a few breaks from Dinosauria to work on other things like little board games and stuff just to kind of recharge. And uh, the very last time I, I was like, okay, I'm going to take one more break work on some other little prototype and then I'll come back to Dinosauria one last time and if I still don't have what it, you know what it takes to make this game I'm going to go get a job after my you know 5 years of being indie it's my dream you know my dream to do this but I'm going to have to give up and so I pulled out this old Monaco design and I started working on it and after like a day the damn game was fun and I was like well I better spend another day on this and after 2 days it was really fun and then I spent a, spent a week on it, and I was like, "This is the game I need to be making right now." Um, so I ended up, you know, working on it for six weeks, entering it in the IGF, and then it ends up winning the IGF, uh, the the design award and the the grand prize in 2010. Um, and uh, here I am; it's finally out. Now, uh, what is so? I, I've been fortunate enough to be able to see a version of it on the Xbox 360. Uh, by the way, is it available on the PlayStation Store? No. No, okay, it's right, so, it, but there's no. Ex, I don't have any sort of exclusivity, so I would love to get the game onto to every platform if I can. But right now, it's just available for Steam. But you were fortunate enough to send a few folks the the Xbox 360 version before whatever happened happened. So I've been lucky enough to be able to play it on the 360. And good lord, is this just such an ideally suited game for sitting in a living room on yeah. a big screen with all your friends locally? Uh, unfortunately, there was a hitch. So what can you say about when uh, it will be available? for the 360, because I know a lot of folks are wondering. Right. So um, uh, we found a bug um, the day before launch, um, and I, that is not a – that is absolutely true. Uh, I, I'm sorry. Hold on. We found a bug, actually. We found a bug Friday before la- uh, launch. Uh-huh. We confirmed how bad it was on Monday, and then on Tuesday the decision was made to pull the launch. And the game was supposed to come out on, on Tuesday? Wednesday. On, Wednesday. on Wednesday. Okay, right. So we right. pulled, with the decision to pull it was made the day before launch. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a, a, a bug where uh, clients were being disconnected in, in uh, online games, uh, in four-player online games. Um, and um, uh, I, I, you know, I would love to just basically give tons of detail on this because there's nothing. I have nothing to hide. There's nothing like scary or weird about it. Um, the the reasoning behind the whole thing and why I wasn't caught all makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, it's important for me to respect my NDA with Microsoft, even though none of the stuff I feel is particularly scary or weird. Um, so I, I can't give too much detail because it, because you know it is under NDA with them, and, and if they want to talk about it, then they can talk about it. At any rate. Um, uh, the circumstances of the bug made it made it be something that was a little a little hard to track down and uh, and figure out and and uh, um, we uh, I just this morning I submitted a, a new update for it that I think is going to go through. I don't. I also don't control the timing on these things. Sure. Um, that is all uh, in the hands of the the Microsoft Game Studios folks. Um, so. Uh, 
assuming that this passes through and the the bug is in fact gone, like I, I hope it is, um, then uh, um, it will be up to them when it when it comes out. But I think that everyone in the whole situation wants, you know, we all know that the game is being received really well, so we would definitely want to get the game out to fans as quickly as we we possibly can. So you've basically done uh, everything you can at this point, and we're kind of standing by on the certification process from Microsoft. That's right. Yes. Uh, McMaster, can you get on the horn to Bill Gates, uh, just give him a little kick in the pants, say, uh, we need people on this thing on the 360? Yeah, you got it. All right. Uh, McMaster, what, where, I, I know I asked you briefly about this last week, but where are you currently with Monaco in terms of what's your favorite character and what things do you need Andy to fix to make you better at the game? Uh, I like them all so far and nothing. <laughs> uh, McMaster, do you have a favorite level? Is there anywhere where you particularly love uh, anything you've discovered? Um, what, as the mole, which level do you like breaking the most? Um, the one I've enjoyed breaking the most lately is the one where you have to, it's an early level where you have to get a trophy. And if you're the mole, you can just kind of cut through the wall. Oh, the bank. the trophy, yeah, mm-hmm. and just walk out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so funny, because that bank, we, there are some impervious walls in the game, and right. that wall used to be an impervious wall, but it was the first level right after you got the mole. And we realized late in the process that it's like, you know what? People just got the mole and they want to break some fucking walls. So turn them into regular walls. If they want to take the mole, grab the trophy and escape with in, in five seconds without picking up any coins. You know what? Fuck it. Let's let them do that. They'll probably get a good laugh out of it. You know? Oh yeah, no, it was very entertaining. <laughs> so uh, so yeah, we we decided. You know, one of the last changes we made to the levels was to 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 give you you know to allow you to basically cheese the level in five seconds if you wanted to, um, especially because people that play the mole are trying to cheese things anyway. So that that's like the ultimate reward for someone who likes cheese and shit. You know, McMaster, remember when Andy explained how I was the smarter player <laughs> playing the redhead? Remember that? That was cool, wasn't that? Yeah, I liked that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, why? Why is the monkey named Hector? Oh, I don't know. I just thought it was cute. Uh, you need to work on that that answer, Andy. Sorry. Like maybe uh, here. Like, he's not. He's not. He's not based on Hector Sol- Salamanca. But it, I was watching Breaking Bad at the time. It was not intentionally uh, based on his name, but. Uh, that that was just the name that came to mind. I don't uh, know you know what? I... Go with uh, some answer about the the Iliad and the folly of war. Something like that. <laughs> just work up some answer like that. And you'll you'll sound super intellectual, and people will imagine you like wearing a beret, and it'll be really. Cool. <laughs> um, uh, what is the deal? Okay, Andy, I have a question for you. Are you a cat person or a dog person? And I think I know the answer. <laughs> I grew up with dogs. I do have cats now. Ah, you're a converted cat person. That makes sense. All right. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. early on, of course, there's dogs, and they're really annoying. But uh-huh. you know, I think if you've been around dogs, you're like, well, yeah, that makes sense. Dogs are going to play by different rules. Uh, you, you know, they're, they're going to suss out people on a heist. But then I was surprised to get to the royal palace later in the game. Oh, and discover, cats, man. Oh, my God. Cats are way better than guard dogs. Yeah, they are. <laughs> what the heck? And not only that, but the, the members of the royal guard know that, hell, a cat's yowling. I'm going to come running and see what the deal is. Like, I now know, I'm a cat owner, too. According to the rules of that level in Monaco, my house is pretty much heist-proof. <laughs> Yeah. Well, Shadow does meow, like, all the time, so, I mean, 
I think that means people are trying to heist my house all the time. Yeah, because it's true. In that level in Monaco, you walk within. So what I what I'm wondering, Andy, is the idea that when you've walked near a cat, you've stepped on the poor thing's tail. Why yeah. are cats such great guard dogs? <laughs> I mean, my cats are constantly walking underfoot. It's like they want to have their tail stepped on. It's a, yeah, and the the one that the art is based on one of our cats named Perns, P-R-N-T-S. That's no vowels, all consonants. Um, uh, and she is definitely the vocal one of the family. She will run around. She will let us know when she is carrying her string. She is. It's it is like yeah. Yo guys, I got a string here. Watch out. I am the most important thing in the room right now. Yes. <laughs> it's, so, yeah, it's it's funny because so the dogs I I don't know how many people actually realize this the dogs will literally track your scent which is why Well you say that. That's I mean you you I don't know if you know this Andy but there's so many things that you lay out in the game very clearly that I think some people still miss. But I mean you literally write Tips like on the floor in big letters. Let's <laughs> ignore them, anyways. Yeah. But yeah, it's when I was a kid. Even when I was like in high school, my buddy and I would still play. We played hide and seek when we were in high school because my dog, without us training her, learned to track scent, and she would put her nose to the ground and literally walk your footsteps wherever you walked. And so we like had these little like elastic uh, bow and arrows with a with a little suction cup on the end. Yep. Yep. And uh, we would go out and we would play hide and seek with those. And the you know the dog you'd stay inside with the dog for two minutes, and so the person that would go I have to go outside and like literally run in circles in order to try and confuse the scent and like try and run through like a a patch of water in order to make it lose the scent and that kind of thing, and that like emotional experience was something is definitely a, a, a definitely a, a source of inspiration for uh, for making Monaco. And one of the cool things too about Monaco is I feel like you're not overusing certain assets like when i got to the dogs i was like okay well great there's going to be a dog in every level now because uh, right. that's that's one school of game design is you just introduce a tweak and then from then on every level has that tweak and you're just stocking it up and now you fight one boss and now you're fighting two of those bosses uh, it seems like you were really judicious with the use of the different gimmicks and tricks and tools uh in, in monaco so i was glad to see that not every level was choked with dogs uh, yeah, and that that's really on Andy Wynn is uh you know the guy who, who did the levels and has done a lot of stuff for the project in general but uh but that was definitely something that I think he was really uh was really important to him that he wanted each level to not just have a a, a aesthetic theme but also a gameplay theme and to really you know focus on that. And then at the same time we kind of went with the portal approach where the the whole first campaign is essentially a tutorial of all of the various different mechanics. Um, and then we kind of throw them at you a little more hardcore in the second campaign. Hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's two or three mechanics in, introduced in pretty much every level of the first campaign. Now, uh, you mentioned a, a player, uh, a mod, basically a, a mod kit. What did you call it? Like, like we can expect. Oh, we, have a, we have a level editor that's going to be coming out in the next week or two. So this thing's going to explode, right? There's going to be like crazy amounts of levels from uh, from the player community. Ninety percent of them will suck, but ten percent of them are going to be freaking ingenious and might even upstage some of what you and Andy have created, yeah, right? I hope so. I hope so. We'll see. I, I, it's funny. I actually, my philosophy on on this kind of thing is is I'd really like to do something a little more intense. I don't know if I'll have, ever have the time to do it, but I but I've designed out the concept of it um, and even started working on some of the technology. But uh, I'd really like to have um, 
cooperative level editing um, on a massive scale where basically you get a whole you get a community of literally a thousand people that are all working within the same level um, because I, I to some extent or at least allow people to um, all refine and edit a smaller s- selection of levels so so part of the, this this con- grander concept that I'd love to one day experiment with is that rather than anyone being able to make their own level um, the way they want, make it so that there's literally just 10 plots of land, and until those 10 plots of land all have shipping quality levels in them, the community isn't given more space to play with. Um, I feel like in something like, um, in your typical like little big planet, 99% of, of the, the, the literal energy that's poured into the system ends up being waste, wasted. It's like if you had a, a car engine that lost 99% of the energy of combu- the combustion energy, that would be a terrible car engine. Um, and, you know, some, some people that are editing levels are going to be really good at the aesthetic side of things. Some people are going to be really good at trap design. Some people are going to be really good at other things. Some people might just not have time right now, but have time later in the day. And so, what I want to do is take more of a Wikipedia approach in the future, and I'm, again, this is not going to be in version one of the level to, the level editor, and it may never get in there. But I, but I, I, this is something I'd like to experiment with in the future. That the idea that Wikipedia um, it does a much better job harnessing the energy that goes into the system than um, than something like Little Big Planet, because Little Big Planet has all of this wasted stuff. In Little Big Planet, um, the the main problem with playing user made levels is a discovery one, right? That that you you bubble up to the top the good stuff and then you let all the other stuff just go to waste. Whereas in Wikipedia, all of the content is potentially useful, and if it's not useful, it gets refined or destroyed. Um, I, you remind me, Andy, of I, I do think of some of the great levels in Little Big Planet are these sort of modular creations that make use of other people's work. Mm -hmm. There's this sort of globular sense where, hey, somebody made a cool model, and then somebody put it in a little uh, arena, and then somebody built another game around it. And there's this sense of of building blocks from different players. Uh, And I even think, for instance, uh, a game like Skyrim, uh, Bethesda's open-world RPG, on the PC gets all of these mods, and then people collect these mods into these big, grand packages where the mods lock together and interrelate and and create new super mods, kind of. And how much of that content does a single person really consume? If I got the whole community to build, say, one level a day, um, but that was a ship-quality level, then, you know, there's 33 levels in Monaco. What if you got 365 ship-quality levels in a year? Right. Um, I mean, that would be that would be huge. That's that would that's far more valuable to everyone than having 30,000 levels of which 10 are good. Right. Um, or even it's, it's even far more valuable than 30,000 levels of which 365 levels are good <laughs> because you don't have the discovery problem at that point. Right. Um, right. You, you just say, hey, all these levels are good. And I'm not saying I want to take away the ability for people to just make their own level if they just want to make their own level. But I do think that um, uh, there are much better ways to harness um, community, uh, to harness a collaborative editing of, of things like that um, than is currently being done pretty much anywhere in the industry. Sure. Exciting stuff. Exciting stuff. Yeah. Uh, I, I still have to get through your 33 levels, though. So, <laughs> uh, so we're going to take a quick commercial break, uh, and then we will be back uh, with more with Andy Schatz, and we will all be picking uh, our games of the week. 
So uh, stick around for that. Uh, but first, this message from our sponsors. Do you like stealth? Do you like cute, top-down retro graphics? Do you like collecting coins? Then you'll love South of France. I'm going to take your stuff, even though it's not legal. In South of France, I'm going to take your stuff, even though it's not legal. You'll take control of characters like the suave man, the computer nerd, the reckless construction guy, the dude with the monkey, the one what picks locks, the hot chick, the knocker outer, and the... the, um... uh, I always forget the last one. The suave man, computer nerd, reckless construction guy, dude with the monkey, the one what picks locks, uh, did I say the reckless construction guy? I think I did. Uh, the hot chick, the knocker outer, and the computer nerd. Did I say that one? I think I did. I see swap man, computer nerd, reckless construction guy, dude with a monkey, one with pixel locks, hot chick, knocker outer, um, I don't know. And Doc! We'll, just, we'll say Doc. And, and characters like Doc. Collect coins, don't let the guards see you, and try to get a high score. It's south of France. I'm going to take your stuff, even though it's not legal. The new game from Chill and Go. Wait, no, I meant from Zynga. The new game from Zynga. Or uh, from EA, from Electronic Arts. The new game from EA. Please don't sue me. And we are back. McMaster, what is it time for right now? Uh, it is time for Games of the Week. McMaster, why aren't we doing News of the Week? Uh, because it sucks. <laughs> I agree. And we're about to get hit with more freaking news than you could shake a stick at. You know, E3 stuff coming up, all these yeah. announcements. So let's let's just take a break from news. No one cares about that. We're going to have plenty to make up for it. And let's just go straight to Games of the Week. Um, so, McMaster, why don't you start us out? What have uh-huh. you chosen this week for your Game of the Week? I'm guessing World of Warcraft. No. Um but uh, I have a choice of two for you, because there's only really been playing two games. Uh, I mean, other than Monaco, which we spent time discussing at length. So you can uh, you could then put this to a vote that me and Andy, we can like cast votes on which should be your game of the sure. week. Should we do it that way? All right. So what are our options? All right. You're going to love this. Okay. Uh, your options are 10 million and StarCraft 2. <laughs> Andy, do you know what 10 million is? I do not. So, which means which means let's talk about that one. Ah, well, I, I certainly yeah I've had my fill of StarCraft two, uh, so I vote as well, McMaster for ten million. And and McMaster, are you sure it's not ten thousand or even one thousand or one hundred million? How do you know for sure the name of it and what is this thing? Uh, ten million. Well, I know the name of it because I can count zeros. Um, yeah, there's no commas in there. There's no commas. Right. You can't tell. Like, at a glance, you have to, like, get a slide rule and figure out how many zeros, where the commas should go, all of that stuff. You have to do math to say the name of this game. You understand, Andy. uh, Tom really, he spent, like, the first half of the podcast telling everybody how smart. I know, but he's the smart. He's a a snowflake and all that. (laughs) Um, But he can't count. So you need to count above seven or eight, and you can really figure out. He's artistically inclined. Thank you. It's all left brain stuff, McMaster. <laughs> right, right. I forgot about that. Uh, it, it, here's a fact: Tom doesn't even know how to read. Kelly Wong <laughs> reads everything to him. I have someone yes. come over. I pay him to read things out loud to me. That is correct. Uh, do you guys know about my circumference thing? Have I explained that to you? Oh, sure, a real quick math thing. Andy, 
what would you say if I were to tell you that the earth does not have a circumference? If I were to make that statement, would you think I'm an idiot or would you realize that I'm a genius? Well, I would, I would realize that what you understand is a description of fractals, um, self-similarity. That, uh, that Andy, we, we what is speak the length of a coastline. Yeah, we, we speak English on this podcast, Andy. <laughs> I don't know what language that was, but I haven't what, taken that in high school. I didn't no, know shit just got real. What is, the length of the, what is the length of the California coastline? That's essentially the same question. That it depends on, it depends on what, what your yardstick is. Yeah, what's your measure? So I think what you're saying, Andy, is that you realize I'm a genius. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, my thing about circumference, and I think that's what you're getting at, is that the Earth doesn't have a circumference. It has infinite circumferences because circumference just matters where you're measuring it, and it's different at well, the Well, you could – you're not such a genius because you could certainly measure its convex circumference. Right. <laughs> but that's not what I said, though. I said a circumference. It does not have a circumference. You have just agreed with me. You have just proven to the listening audience that, yes, I'm, the Earth does not have a circumference. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so I'm terrible at math. I make no bones about that. But, Master, this game is called, what is it, 1,000? 10, 10, 10 million. 1,000. 10 million. Something like that. The name of this game is actually just a one followed by a bunch of zeros. It's an it's yeah. Cool little iPad game. In uh-huh. Tom's head, it's two oh. hands flashing their fingers over and over again, like jazz hands, to uh, ten million times. <laughs> right? Isn't it called Millions? Are you ta- are you talking about Millions? That's a Danny Boyle movie. Uh, no, is it? Are you talking about the one by uh, um, uh, Greg Woolwind and uh, uh, um, Adam Salzman and? Uh, I like the sound of this. Whatever it is that you're talking about, I kind Anyways, of continue. So just describe it. Describe it. Yeah, describe okay. it. Sure. It's, uh, it's a match game where you're running through a dungeon, ah, okay. left to right, uh, and you encounter monsters and chests, and you have different kinds of little uh, symbols on uh, the screen that are jumbled up that you make matches of three, four, five, etc. Uh, in particular symbols to do either combat or unlock chests. So basically, the way I would say it, McMaster. I mean, you did fine, but I would edit Thanks. your comments down. As your as your copy editor, McMaster, I would say. So basically, it's an endless runner meets a match three meets an RPG loot chase. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, and what makes this your game of the week? Because it sounds like a terrible idea for a game, doesn't it? <laughs> it's uh, it's very addicting. Um, I've had a lot of time with my phone lately, like and. Uh, and that's that's one thing you can do with a lot of time and a phone. Master, when you say I've had a lot of time with my phone lately, you sound slightly forlorn, like you were yeah. shipwrecked on a desert island or something. That's oh, I kind of Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> you call your phone Wilson. Yeah, yeah, but it's about Wilson Phillips. <laughs> Uh, so uh, you're, you're doing a terrible job of I'm trying to play like devil's advocate, McMaster, and throwing you like softballs. Um, so the game's graphics are terrible, right? I mean, well, I mean, yeah, but uh, at the same no, time, they're very, they're very stylized and cool. Very good, very good. Yeah, it's got it's like like Monaco. It has a very sort of retro look to it. Right, and uh, I, really, what sells it is that you run through these mazes, and I mean, you never, I mean, you can't. I, I don't think it's possible to just go forever. Of course, you're eventually going to lose. And um, that's McMaster. You have just highlighted the fallacy of the endless runner. All endless runners end. Right. Uh, so, uh, but but every time you go through these mazes, you're you're also matching up uh, not mazes, just runs. Uh, you're matching up resources, 
And um, the resources count for later on when you're back at your base. You can purchase upgrades to different workshops that also, that give you different abilities that you can purchase with gold and experience, etc., that you earn while killing monsters. Don't forget, McMaster, you need wood and stone as well, I believe. Right. The resources <laughs> that you... Uh, Right, you can match up wooden stone that gives you bits of wooden stone, as it sounds. Um, there are also lots of little challenging achievements. Uh, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, that give you bonuses that you, you can try to get, um, and th- and they're a lot of fun to go through uh, initially. Uh, they're very compelling. Um, and uh, the oh, just, oh, this is this all makes me think. It, it's it's it. Makes me think about the concept of, of runners. That runners are pretty much always that you're running from something, and, and uh, it kind of makes me want to make a runner about running towards something that you never quite managed to catch. Imagine like imagine if if Super Mario, if the princess was literally on the right hand side of the screen the whole time, and as you moved closer to her, she kept running away from you. It would make it a totally different type of game. It'd be I mean that's kind of creepy in a sense, but it's uh, a. <laughs> um, like imagine, like imagine taking a, a game like Cannibal or something like that, and making it where it's like he's not running from buildings that are falling down, but literally trying to catch someone that he never quite manages to catch that always is, always escapes. It's like it's like the carrot sitting on you know, like attached to a, a pole that's attached to your head. Uh, well, you know who kind of did that, Andy. Like I'm thinking of the the final reveal. It's kind of a spoiler in um, in Braid. Yeah, Jonathan. Blow I was just on. thinking of. I, I was honestly going to say, don't tell Jonathan Blow. Yeah. Well, no. It, it reminds me, one of my favorite books, a book called Invisible Cities, where and and one of the one of the little bits, it, Invisible Cities, basically each little chapter is like a two page chapter in which uh, uh, Marco Polo is describing a, a fantastical city to Genghis to Genghis Khan, some city that lies within his domain that he's never seen, and each of them are are more fantastical than the, than the last, and and one of them is a city that's designed that was designed by an architect who every night he had a dream that he was chasing. This this beautiful naked woman through a city, and she would always slip around a corner and escape. And then he would he would get around there and see her at the end of the alley, and he would chase her down there, and she would escape. So he he designed the city to have dead ends at all the places where <laughs> the woman got away. But it turns out that all these other architects have been having similar dreams, and so they come in and start putting in new dead ends. And like and, and so the description of the city is one in which like it's basically impossible to navigate because every time you go around a corner where you you think you should be able to get from here to there, you turn you you turn down a blind alley or dead end or something along those lines and it just reminds me of like that that feeling of never quite managing to catch the thing that you are so desperately wanting to catch well the way they do that with with 10 million is by by putting this loot chase onto it where you know as you're as you're accumulating the wood and the stone and the gold there are things you want to buy because you're buying equipment, you're upgrading your base, which unlocks more equipment, you're getting experience points, which gets you skills. Um, you know, and that's, that's the gameplay presentation of the beautiful naked woman running away in the city, uh, is there's always something that you're just on the verge of getting. So I'm just going to play one more match to make a little bit more money or to get yeah. a little bit more XP. Yeah, and the matches are uh, really fast usually. I mean, they don't last more than two or three minutes on average. But Master, you're lucky because you're getting to play it now. When when it was first released, uh, it was really finicky with lining up the the matching, and there was a there was a weird interface hitch with it that was eventually uh, he he managed to work around it, and there was a patch. Um, but when it first came out, it, it, that game was so infuriating for how difficult it was to line up 
the, the little pieces. And considering how, how, how important the timing was and how quickly you were supposed to match things, uh, uh, it drove me crazy when it first came it, out. It still kind of sucks on Steam for that because I have it on Steam as well. Um, because you have to click and drag, and sometimes animations take forever to finish, and sometimes the stacks. Oh, uh, uh, see, that's a shame because I, I think of it as so tactile. You know, running your finger down the. Uh, I mean, I guess. Oh yeah. Uh, it just works so well on a big old iPad, I think. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, I've played it on both, uh, and uh, I really like it on the phone. You know, uh, but uh, yeah. Master, what what level are you on the on the iOS version? Uh, I have uh, finished it. So I'm free. How about that? That's what level I am. Free. <laughs> oh, well, I'm that plus one. That's what I meant to say. Oh, <laughs> uh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Uh, all right. So 10 million. That's uh, uh, Andy. What was that millions thing that you mentioned? Oh, gosh. I got to remember what it's called. It's also an iPad game. It's the one that, uh, oh, it's called Hundreds. Sorry. It's not called Millions. It's oh, called please. So it's nowhere near as good oh, as Millions. Oh, yeah, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, that's like, that's like billions of times worse than millions, right? Yeah, exactly. I have my orders of magnitude right here? <laughs> uh, it's what, like, what it's is, like tens of times worse. Yeah, yeah, that that's can't be any good. Um, <laughs> uh, is hundreds something worth, what, what is that? I, I'm intrigued at somebody who would name a game hundreds. That makes me want to know, why is this called hundreds? It's a, uh, it's a really just sort of beautiful little uh, um, uh, game that is very simplistic in its presentation in in that uh, it's it's all mechanics basically there's there's a bunch of circles floating around and you have to um, you you when you there's certain circles that you all need to get all need to get to at a hundred or over in terms of their circumference or something and when you're when you're touching that circle it grows bigger you can't be touching any circle when it touches any other circle. And so there's, there's actually a huge number of different mechanics that they actually managed to, to discover inside of this very basic um, concept. And uh, the presentation of it is just super, super, okay. super slick. So it's, it's definitely worth checking out. I feel I could learn more about circumferences by playing this game. <laughs> oh. uh, McMaster, why is 10 million called 10 million? Because that's the uh, score you have to get in a single run to escape. Very good. Um, all right, so uh, McMaster, an old iPad game. Uh, oh, yeah, it's old school. <laughs> Actually, it is, like, it's got to be at least, what, three, four months old? That's I know. Yeah. That's that's ancient at quarter to three. <laughs> not, a, not as old as StarCraft II, though. Well, right, but I've been playing different aspects of StarCraft II. I've been playing uh, on the ranked ladder lately. Oh, good Lord, why would you do that? What uh, what color? Are you, are you tin league? You no, oh no. Uh, I'm actually in a 3v3 team, so it's not that fantastic, but we're bronze, the fantastic bronze league. <laughs> it's not bad. That's nothing to, to sneeze at, McMaster. Uh, congratulations. Okay. Uh, all right, so, uh, so uh, McMaster has picked 10 million. Uh, Andy, I'm going to go next. Mm-hmm. My game of the week, I'm going to let you guys vote on this. Hold on, I have to write the name of one of them because I know the words, but I can never get them in the right order. Hold on. Uh, Matt. Uh, Technica Tune Matt. You know, I think I've screwed up the order of the words, so don't hold me to the actual name of this. Here are the the games that I would pick. I'm going to present two games. You guys vote on which should be my game of the week. They're both PlayStation Vita games. Uh, One is called Soul Sacrifice. The other one is called DJ Technica Tune Max. I think I might have screwed up the order of those words. Uh, Andy, cast your vote. 
Oh, I gotta go for a DJ Technica Tune Max, cause what the hell. Alright, yeah. Master, cast your vote. I kinda gotta go with Andy on this one. Let's go for that, uh, whatever the hell you're talking about. <laughs> so this is an old game, it came out last year. Uh, oh my god. <laughs> it's so, yeah, it's now officially obsolete. No one would ever play it. Uh, no, what it is, is I'd heard about it. It's a, it's a, it's a rhythm-based game, um, and these can be a dime a dozen. Um, I, I've been playing one on the DS called um, Harmonite, Harmonite, yeah, which I finally realized, oh, they think they're making a play on the word harmonize, because um, it's like Harmo and then Knight, K, oh, like GHT. Yeah, and you're a knight running around, and it's like a platformer, and he can jump and fight things. But you're basically just tapping the screen in in in, uh, in, in, in rhythm with these tunes. And in Harmonite, you know, it's almost like an endless runner, except it's not endless. There are these discrete levels that you play. Um, and it's kind of cool, and the tunes are catchy, and the art style is cute. Um, but it's uh, the, the gameplay feels very limited, um, of course, because it's just a little rhythm-based thing. So I'd heard good things about this other rhythm-based game on the Vita called DJ Tune Max Technica or whatever, something like that. Didn't know anything about it except that it was a, you know, it was a lot of folks on the Vita like it. So I, I get this game and I boot it up and I am assaulted with horribly bland J-pop. This is a this is an incredibly Japanese game. I don't think you can really buy it in the U.S. You just have to buy it from the PlayStation Store. I don't think you can get it anywhere else in the U.S. Like you're never going to find it at a GameStop or anything like that, as far as I know. And I don't know any of the songs in here. I mean, I know plenty of like crappy pop music, but all of this is just weird stuff that I presume is either popular in Japan or they could license for cheap. Um, and when you play this game. It shows you a music video for a song, and a lot of these are just little anime things. Some of them are these Japanese girls just jumping around in candy-colored suits. It's the actual footage of the video. Um, and on the screen, there's just little dots that you tap in order with a bar that's moving along to help you keep rhythm. And that's all there is to it. You're just tapping at the screen. Sometimes you drag your finger. Sometimes, if you're really advanced, you tap the back of your Vita. So it gets a little crazy that way. But for whatever reason, it's made me realize, holy cats, J-pop is popular for a reason. <laughs> because I'm finding myself suddenly, I, wo I woke up this morning, I don't know if you guys have ever done this. I woke up this morning and I was like humming a song. Like as I was waking up and going about my business, there was just this like tune in my head and I was sort of like humming along with it. And then I stopped later and I was like, what the hell song is that? Where did I get that? And I realized it was this Korean pop song from TJ Maxx Technica tune uh, <laughs> that I played several times trying to like improve my score. And that thing has now burrowed into my head. And I'm I'm probably on the verge of actually like buying it uh, an album from this Korean <laughs> on iTunes. Um, That's what Persona did to me. There's a few games like that that really get stuck in your head. Well, and the thing is, like, if you were to hear this the song from Persona Master, if you're just going about your daily life, you're in your car or whatever, and you are, are you hear this song. You wouldn't think twice about it. It would go in one ear, out the other, but because you hear it over and over while you're doing something like playing Persona, oh, it yes. worms into your brain kind of like that little bug wormed into Scotty's ear in that Star Trek movie, mm -hmm. uh, and, and you remember it, and it stays there. Uh, it's viral. It's downright viral. I think effective pop music is viral that way. Um, so I am now, because of uh, Tune Max Technica DJ, I am now a fan of... of 
J-pop, and not even J-pop. For for whatever reason, there's this Korean pop group. These five adorable Korean chicks. They call themselves Kara. That's the name of the group. Uh, they became big in Japan, and you know their last album was called Step. That's the title track. That's the song I was humming this morning. I, you know, I love this stupid song now because of this game. Um, it, it's funny. I, I went to China a couple years ago after uh, the game won the IGF. I uh, went out and, sp- and spoke out there, but um, uh, at, at GDC in China, and uh, uh, there, the 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 boy bands and, and everything that are out there. There's a there's a group called Super Junior that's like the the biggest one. <laughs> they, they're so explicit about about the fact that they're commercial. It's actually really pretty amazing. Like even the the pop groups here that are that are really obviously just commercial. You know, they're 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 constructed from from uh, plastic and silicon. Um, uh, they they still try and put on airs of of having artistic integrity of some sort. They they like to think to themselves, oh well, I write my own music, you know that kind of thing. Right. Um, or at least they try and hide it. Over there, their interviews are like, yes, well, we have one Japanese person in our group because we wanted to appeal to the Japanese people. <laughs> and then we've got three Koreans and we've got one Chinese person, and we just added a Chinese person because we want to expand into that market as well. Um, you know, and it's like it was. It's amazing how how openly commercial they are, and how it doesn't you know that doesn't really bother anyone. Um, and I think maybe it's because I don't I, I'm no anthropologist, but it does feel as if um, uh, we are we grew up. I think we grew up with uh, um, you know the early rock stars being being our heroes in a different sort of way. That all of the early rock stars in our um, history are people that did write their own music, and so that is something that's really core to our experience. Whereas when ro- when when rock and roll gets exported to places that doesn't have that kind of history, the the same sort of history and value of uh, commercialism or uh, you know of avoiding that kind of commercialism maybe doesn't exist. And so you know you can you can love the band and you can love the music just even though it's it's totally commercially constructed and you can kind of just not even worry about that and which is kind of nice and freeing right that that like you're sitting here actually getting into this this K-pop or J-pop or whatever it it happens to be because it's a little earworm and it gets in there and and you're you know you're not thinking about the commercial aspects of it but it is built it is designed literally to just be an earworm for you you know those well, hooks are designed in a scientific way yeah, and it makes me wonder too. Is there some element of how this is sold in the United States of uh, self-deception? Like, like is part of Justin Bieber's popularity this idea that he takes himself seriously, that it's not that he is kind of this auteur who can write some of his own songs and he works with rap artists? Um, it, is that kind of presentation necessary for Americans? Because I think of reality TV and how reality TV is anything but. And if you talk to anyone who writes, who works on reality TV, they have writers, it's carefully edited, there's nothing real or authentic or spontaneous about reality TV, but yet I think that's a lot of people who watch it and like it are tricked into thinking that. Um, well, my, you know, my my wife watches Real Housewives and 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 loves but ironically, it. ironically. No, well, actually, early on, you know, no, at, at first she watched Real Housewives and uh, it was it was her workout routine. She would do she would lie on the ground and anytime anyone did anything horrible, she had to do sit ups. <laughs> 
And so she was basically doing sit-ups for the entire show. Um, and then it turned into, you know, it's an earworm, and it gets in, and she starts enjoying watching these idiots doing their thing. And she asked me recently if I wanted to watch another season with her, because normally she doesn't let me watch with her because she feels judged, and I don't blame her. Um, but she was, you know, her, her resolve broke down, and she asked me if she, I wanted to watch the, the latest season of Orange County or whatever with her, and I'm like, no thanks. And then I thought about it. I was like, you know what? I, uh, AbFab uh, was something that I was around when I was young, and I thought it was I thought it was horrible because I didn't like watching these people when I was young. But I was like, you know what? I, I, sh- I should look that up again because Ab- Absolute Fabulous is basically like um, Real Housewives sure. scripted Real Housewives, right. and it's hilarious. It's freaking hilarious. But you know, it it is fun to watch. You know, even if it is scripted, it, I have to admit, you know, even the reality stuff, you know, it's it's stupidly entertaining sometimes. Well, and it, it's it's carefully engineered to be that way, just like yeah. just like J-pop and stuff. I I think Andy of a show that I love, even though I am so aware of what an exercise it is in in demographic social engineering. There's a sitcom on ABC called Modern Family. Oh. Uh, I love that show, and it's so blatantly, you know, there's there's a. It's it's made to appeal to a cross section of people. You know, there's something for Latinos. There's something for for uh, people who are sympathetic to gay causes. There's something for just white bread middle Americans. There's something for people who want like a, a curvy chick. There's somebody something for people who are into like like soccer moms. Uh, there are all kinds of different kid actors on it, and it's all about just and all of those are Tom's demographic. Well, let me tell you, there are very few elements of Modern Family that I don't think, oh, yeah, I can see why somebody would like that. Even the stuff that I'm like, that's not funny. I don't don't laugh at that. Uh, But I'm just fascinated at how how carefully engineered it is for maximum viral effect, basically. Um, And so that's my fascination, too, with this this J-pop or K-pop group. Is you know you look at the five girls and you think oh, okay well there's the slutty one there's the smart one yeah. there's there's the one who's kind of secretive and probably has a dark past uh, and even though they you know none of they're all just like cute models uh, but they're kind of chosen for their different face types I guess hey um, if, if you can design eight Monaco characters around <laughs> uh, around like player styles and player archetypes why can't you design five Korean pop singers around that. Andy, you've just outed yourself as a as a creator of, of superficial, demographically engineered entertainment. Uh, all right, so there, there's my game of the week as a as a corny little uh, rhythm based game uh, on the PlayStation Vita. So, Andy, that leaves you. What right. now? First of all, how can you possibly have time to play games? And if you did, what would you choose as your game of the week? Uh, well, I, I have some time to play games. Anytime anyone says that they don't have time to do things, I say to them, you just make a choice not to have time. Exactly. Um, uh, you know, you, you choose to do other things. And, and, you hear uh, that, McMaster? So that this guff you've given me about not being able to help me play Dead Space 3, that's not flying anymore, McMaster. Yeah. You, well, maybe, you, maybe, you maybe he's got better things to it. do. Like three months, so I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> All right, so Andy, what have you made time to play recently and chosen as your game of the week? And... Is there something that McMaster and I can maybe vote on? Uh, you know, I would give you a vote. Well, I, no, I'm going to give you this vote. I'm going to give you a vote because I know, I know what you won't choose. Ah, I see. So this is kind of like the way they used to vote in Russia, in the Soviet uh-huh. Union. I understand. Uh-huh. Andy, Andy Schatz does not believe in free and fair elections, but he's no. going to hold them anyway. So, Andy, yeah. go ahead. Give us the vote. All right. Um, for uh, y- your first candidate uh, for voting upon mm-hmm. is... 
this is this wonderful, epic, lovely game in which you form a, a dynamic relationship with a, a younger female counterpart who will throw you ammo and, and uh, um, uh, in, in which you can go around and, and pick up tchotchkes, uh, which will allow you to, to sort of RPG-ish up your American history weaponry. You're and this so trans- game is so transparent. This game is called Bioshock Infinite. So you may ask me uh, to speak about Bioshock Infinite, but what is this coming out from behind the curtain? This other game, you probably not heard of it. Wow. It's a phenomenon. It's amazing. Look at it. It's a game called Gloom. It's a card game. It's a card game that I had not previously heard of, but my wife discovered it and got it for me for my birthday and played it with a bunch of friends. It's a game about uh, um, it's a game about families that are are uh, falling apart, in which the players get to tell the most horrid horrid stories and get to abuse one another with awful things that happen to each other, but in which the player must try and can basically create, in which the player must must uh, create the most awful story mm-hmm. for their family. Um, okay. Yeah. Andy, yeah. I, I think I think I know what you think you're doing, and I also think you've failed completely. Uh, well, I will say that because I, I, of course, I know both of these games, and and I would furthermore love to hear you talk about either of them. So, I basically am going to abstain from voting. All right. So, McMaster, that comes down to you. And McMaster, it sounds like, also abstaining from voting. He's uh, refusing to take a stand. Tell you what, I'll talk about both. Okay. <laughs> Have you been playing both? I played through Bioshock Infinite. Okay. Um and uh, I have not played a lot of Gloom, but I think that there is something about there is something about Gloom. Well, first of all, I want to describe what it is because it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's something uh, about Gloom. The most fascinating thing, fascinating thing I find about Gloom stands in very stark contrast to Bioshock Infinite. Ah, okay. Um, so Gloom. I'll start with Gloom, just so people can have you know. I I expect that most people already know generally what the deal is with Bioshock Infinite. <laughs> Um, so Gloom is a card game, a physical card game, um, in which each player um, has a family uh, that is sort of a um, horror trope, I suppose. Um, and uh, you have like five cards in, in of, of the five different characters in your family. So I want to I want to interrupt real quick to say I, I don't know that it's necessarily a horror trope, as it's uh, an odd to a, an illustrator named Edward Gorey. Right. Uh, okay, right. That, I think that's that's because it's more this kind of cool American Gothic style. Yes, my, more American Gothic. But they, but it is like you know the 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 necromancer family that that revives her her dead family members, you know, and that kind of thing. That's um, pretty horror. But you you have a point. That's yeah. Okay. Uh, and then you have your your hillbilly family, and then you have your uh, you have a family that's um, uh, circus freaks, and then you have I have these cards the cards in front of me. You have the the, the Wellington Smythe family. So Lord Wellington Smythe, the dumbfounded duke. Since the death of his wife, he is doted on his two youngest children, despite the remarkable lack of paternal resemblance. Uh, L- Lola Wellington Smythe is a, the wild child. Once in a lifetime, you may have the chance to dance with the devil or dice with death. For Lola, that's a slow night. Um, but Are they the ones with the dog, by the way? One of the families gets a dog as a family member. No, the uh, the, the, the necromancer family is the, the dog one, I think. Okay. <laughs> um, the, Butterfield is the lurking butler, and his description simply says, whatever it is, he did it. 
The twins are the adorable tots. The, the Wellington Smythe twins are the sweetest, demonically possessed sociopaths you'll ever meet. So the idea here is that you have these cards in front of you. Um, you represent the family. And you have these other cards in your hand that describe horrible things that might happen to someone. So they're things like, was distressed by dysentery. Um, and the mechanic of this card is the player to your left may randomly dis uh, select and discard two cards from your hand immediately when played. Or slept without sorrows. This is a good one. Relax, let your worries slip away, and try not to think about Mr. Eyeball Plucker in the closet. Or was devoured by weasels, which, is, uh, which kills the character. And so the idea here is that you want to evoke the most... Uh, pathos for your characters as possible. You want your you want your story of your family to be the worst, most awful story that could possibly have happened. Because and everyone else, oh, you have it easy, right? So that's the whole point of the game. And the idea is that you're playing these cards, and you want to play cards on your characters that that make your characters' lives seem absolutely awful before they die. You also have death characters in your hand, and once you play a death character on the card, generally that character can't come back into play, and their, their fate has been sealed with whatever awful things have happened to them during their lives. And you want to play the good cards, the nice cards, on other people's things. But the, the, the part of this... The, the mechanics of it, I, have, I actually haven't played it enough to really get a sense for whether or not I'm, I'm in love with the mechanics. I don't know that I will be. But what I love about it is that the instructions encourage you to tell each time you play one of these cards to tell the story, to expand upon the story of what has happened um, when, this, when this card is played and maybe even expand on it in terms of what has happened to this character in the past. You know, mm -hmm. just try and draw some line through it. Because they end up getting a stack of misfortunes played on them. Yes. You know, these come not single sorrows, but in battalions. So there's a whole bunch of things that happen to each character, and it creates this sort of narrative about the character, doesn't it? Right, exactly. And so what I love about this game is that everyone gets to sit around and make up these funny, awful stories that, and not only that, like, when you get to play a nice thing on someone else's card, it's like, it's, it's happy for everyone because, or it, it's fun because it's like you're doing this awful thing to someone, but you're describing it in the most positive, sickly, sweet uh, uh, way. And, and that sort of inversion of, uh, of, of uh, reward versus uh, punishment mm -hmm. uh, makes the whole thing just, just really just a riot. Um, and, and so what I, what I enjoy about this is, is player-generated narrative. Um, and, you know, with Monaco, at least, there's, there's, you know, there's the, there's the sort of pre-told narrative, but there's a lot of player-generated narrative that happens over the course of an individual level when you're playing, especially when you're playing with others. There's stories that, you know, you end up, you end up remembering. Um, and in a game like FTL, the whole thing is the, is, is, is about, um, generating uh, generating a narrative thread that that moves through each individual game. You know, you might see the same events that happen in a game of FTL. You might see those same darn giant spiders every time, but the context in which those giant spiders appear, given if you have a strong crew or if you have a weak crew, or if it happens at the beginning in the game or at the end of the game, um, generates an entirely different narrative. Um, and uh, and and I think that games like this that are um, that sort of have have Generative or emergent narratives, um, to me, uh, make for the most memorable narratives. I, I remember the original XCOM. Actually, both versions of the of XCOM. I love them both. 
um, both had those same sort of emergent narratives. And, and uh, you know, at the, at the end of the first XCOM, uh, my main guy, Chuck Bryant, who, uh, who had been my hero all along, was like the last guy to survive while going through the alien base. I get to the final room. He's literally out of ammo. And there the brain, the alien brain is in, in the, the glass case. And, you know, he goes to shoot out. He, it click, click. It doesn't, he's got no ammo left. And I'm thinking to myself, well, shit, I'm going to have to redo the whole mission. But I have like two action points left. So I have him throw his gun at the brain and it clunks. <laughs> it hits the glass and falls down. Nothing happens. And then the two guys come in from behind, and they both take auto shots, which are like these, you know, the triple shot. The first bullet hits Chuck, and he falls over dead. The second and third bullet go over his body, hit the alien brain. The base explodes. I get the little cut scene at the end of my hero escaping from the base as it's, as it's exploding. And I'm, like, leaping out of my seat, cheering at that's this lovely. generative thing that's happened. In the new XCOM, um, you know, my, my main guy was a guy I named Cadillac Jones with a big old handlebar mustache. And he was, like, my hero through the first half of the game. And he died tragically. And so I, so I made, uh, I, I created another recruit that I named, it was his son and I named him Pontiac Jones and, and I was I was determined to make Pontiac Jones revenge his father's death and Pontiac Jones ends up being the one you know the guy who you you know without spoiling it basically the hero that that uh, um, you know wins the whole thing for you and you know, yet, it's a rare game, by the way, that can generate that sense of like like a family continuing on something. And yes. it, it reminds me of like what what Rockstar did with Red Dead Redemption. It reminds me of this awesome strategy game called Crusader Kings 2. But I love a game that, that acknowledges that, you know what, someone might die, and maybe their heir is going to have to pick up the uh, mantle and continue right. on. That's right. nice. <laughs> yep, exactly. So, so, uh, so, yeah, so that brings me to Bioshock Infinite. Wait, wait, hold on. Before you uh, go, so my sure. pro, I, I, I was at, uh, where was I? I was at like some, con- oh, I think this was the Penny Arcade, uh, uh, PAX. I was at a convention that had, um, a table set up where you, they were, there was a vendor there selling various board games. Uh, and I was with some other people, and then there was also a library where you could just take a board game and check it out and play with your friends. And I was playing, uh, Small World or something with a bunch of folks I was hanging out with at PAX, and uh, there was a there was a copy. Uh, Gloom is made by a fellow named Keith Baker, and I just kickstarted a game that I just this is like a year ago. I kickstarted a game that he and someone else uh, did a campaign for called The Doom That Came to Atlantic City, and it's a it's a variation of Monopoly where instead of running around buying properties, you play one of the Elder Gods from the Cthulhu Mythos, and you're trying to destroy Atlantic City and cultists. <laughs> so I, I just knew that he was he cre- he did this Kickstarter. I supported it. I love the idea. They're still struggling with getting it made. But I was at Penny Arcade at, at PAX, and I saw this little card game that looked like Edward Gorey artwork, and I saw Keith Baker's name on it, and it was Gloom. I was like, oh, this looks interesting, and I read, and I put it down and didn't think much of it. And then one of my friends explained to me that the conceit of Gloom that you just described, Andy. Um, and that sold me, as well as the fact that the cards in Gloom are these, not acetylene, what do you call that clear plastic? Oh, yeah, right. Uh, I don't know. They're, but they're clear, clear plastic. plastic. You can stack them. You can exactly. stack them. Right, yeah. The idea being that there, there are holes in very particular places where either icons or numbers can show through, so right. that you're basically making a new card by stacking these events on top of the characters. And you can always see the character's face through the event, and then it affects how many points the character is basically worth when it dies and you cash it out. Um, so that's the mechanics of it, and I thought that was really clever. So I immediately went back. I bought Gloom. I bought the expansion pack. It was just an impulse purchase. I, I had to have this. So my problem, Andy, with Gloom is one of interface. 
Sure. I love what you're talking about about the narrative. You know, I love the fact that you know Barrington Willington Smith, whatever his name, right. can acquire all of these events. But the way the interface works is that only the top event shows, right. and that if I was designing this game, I would make it where the interface is clear, where you see the character, and you somehow see the series of events that's happening right. to them. By having this gimmick with the see-through windows, I, I think they hurt the narrative. It might be better if you just lined them up. It, it, exactly. And, yeah. and you, you lose that, that gimmick that I think they were probably wanting to play with the see-through cards, but I think it's way better if you can see all the things that have happened to a character well, in a series. So, so. yeah, it's, it's interesting. I actually, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm sort of uh, uh, knocking around a little concept just to do a little prototype. I'm, I'm prototyping something for a, a, another site just to make a little game um, that, that is, to some extent, inspired by that same concept, and um, it's to some extent inspired by... Uh, um, uh, the telephone game, you know, various different telephone yep. games and uh, um, and Pictionary at the same time. Um, the the idea with this one though is that it's a little, it's kind of hard to tell a good story if you want if you sit down and literally try and tell say a fable to a little kid. Coming up with something that doesn't just ramble <laughs> is actually a hard thing to do. Um, and so I kind of started with this concept of. Uh, can I create sort of hint cards for you to, you know, if you pick out three or four random hint cards and then turn them over one at a time, can you, can you, is, is that going to help someone generate a narrative? And, and I started thinking about this. I'm like, it'd be really interesting to make it essentially an Aesop's Fables um, uh, game in which uh, you have characters, objects, and events. And you you one by one lay these down, and you may, either singular if you're just doing it as a storytelling aid, or as a group in which you're voting on on each sort of event or line that happens next in the story. That all has to coalesce into the final thing, which is what is the moral of this story that was just told, <laughs> which is the punchline to the whole thing. That's awesome. Um, uh, a friend of mine has uh, he's got an eight year old son, and they've been playing Clue lately uh-huh. and i my immediate response was clue why would you want to play that that's like a horrible gameplay and he explained that his son loves this idea of you know fitting together those three components the weapon the place and the character you know right. that as, as a little kid like that really appeals to him so when you describe that andy i'm like yeah that sounds like an awesome game and it, maybe i should play clue again <laughs> <laughs> well yeah I, I think that generative storytelling is really interesting um uh, may I move on to Bioshock Infinite? Now? Yes. All right. So tell me. So Bioshock Infinite. Uh, you know what? Uh, should we should we tell people that we might spoil things, or do you want to be spoiler free? Okay. So we'll we'll avoid spoilers. All right. Yeah, because I'm I'm really just talking about the structure of the story here. And so yeah, and how does it tie in? You you, you claim there's some connection to gloom, or you were gonna? No, it's a, it's a diametric opposite in course, okay. in terms of the story and how the story is told. I didn't personally connect with Elizabeth. Um, mm-hmm. I, no, no, Andy, why do you not like ammo and, and money? <laughs> ammo and money and health packs. Do you hate health packs, Andy? <laughs> uh, it, she um, now I don't have anything by nature uh, against a story that is, so to speak, on rails. Um, you know, some of the best stories are on rails. Um, the opposite of that, of course, is a um, take a game like Journey, where the whole thing is so metaphorical and so blank slate that you fill in your own sort of your own metaphorical story in there. But, you know, when I played through Journey, my wife had had just recovered from from uh, 
uh, cancer, and uh, I was in the middle of making Monaco, and um, I was, you know, it's a short game, it's a game the length of a movie, and each scene itself was triggering these feelings of, like, this is representative of this time in my life, especially with the companion person coming along with you. And then, of course, the emergence into into the light is, you know, this this grand moment. And, of course, it was hilarious that I I thought the whole time I'd been playing with the same person, and then I get to the end, and it's like... (laughs) It's like Frank Jr., T. Gordo, 67, and like, I'm like, T. Gordo, 67, do you realize you were my wife for about half an hour? <laughs> um, so, uh, no, but, 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 you know, Bioshock Infinite is a story on its own terms. Um, it is not a story on the player's terms. Um, there's, there's very little that lets you latch into um, your, uh, the, a person's their the a person's own story, or even really allowing you, it, it's it's sort of all odd enough that it doesn't really allow you to even role play as uh, um, Booker. Right. Um. It, it's their story. It, it's not really your story. Um. And not only that, it it actually uh, you know I I actually was a little more fascinated I think by um by the first Bioshock because. To some extent, all of that meta stuff, um, particularly with Andrew Ryan towards the end, and I'll, I will spoil this one because I'm assuming everyone's played the original Bioshock, and if you haven't, you probably won't. Um, uh, the idea, the would you kindly stuff, the idea that that he has this catch or this this phrase that anytime he says it, it you have to do what he what he asks you to do, and and that sort of uh, a meta concept around the whole of gaming, like why do we keep doing these things when often they're just awful things, um, and do we really have choice in games? And you know, it got all that whole conversation going, and and uh, um, that that allowed me as as the the the, the viewer. To, to sort of take part in that experience because there was it was saying something about my meta experience um, and I didn't feel that that really they they really did that in Bioshock Infinite and by the by the time they got to the end you know with all the twists and everything mm-hmm. um, uh, I kind of didn't care and and it didn't it didn't uh, it didn't it wasn't saying something about my existence that I cared that much about. Um, uh, and don't get me wrong, I, I get the feeling you guys probably didn't like the game at all. At all, I actually liked the game quite a bit, but uh, um, it, it didn't. The, the story was sort of masterfully told on its own, but it didn't really lock into the gameplay, which I thought was quite good. Although uh, you know, somewhat imbalanced between way too easy on the medium difficulty and way too hard on the hard difficulty. Um, but uh, but at the end of the day, you know, this is it, it is a much better better built game than the original Bioshock, but not one that I think is one that I'm going to remember as well, simply because it didn't connect me to my experience of playing the game. Well, I, I think it, yeah, the, not connecting to the gameplay is one of its sins, and and I I, I actually liked Bioshock Infinite, don't get me wrong, I, I'm very critical of certain things about it, but I really liked it, and I really liked some of the narrative beats, some of the reveals, mm-hmm. uh, just as a cerebral narrative, I was just delighted with, mm-hmm. with with Bioshock Infinite. But what you're describing, Andy, that emotional hook um, that is so powerful by being about player agency in Bioshock 1, mm-hmm. uh, Bioshock 2 is so much about parenthood, and I think anybody who's been around children, there, there's, a, there's a deep resonance in Bioshock 2. Mm-hmm. I don't think that Bioshock Infinite has any kind of hook like that. Uh, right. there, there's nothing relatable. 
And part of the problem, Andy, uh, and I mentioned this briefly in a review that I wrote, I think a lot of people misinterpreted it, but part of the problem with Bioshock Infinite is I think the emotional hook is supposed to be, clearly, it's supposed to be between Booker and Elizabeth. But because they're playing with a first-person perspective, you don't see them ever really interact. You know, when you play Uncharted and you see right. Nathan Drake and Elena interact, it's like watching a movie. It's like watching actors. Right. You know you're not one of those, but you can still appreciate that kind of chemistry and that kind of relationship. I, I think that first-person perspective in Bioshock Infinite, where I'm Booker, but I'm Booker's relationship with Elizabeth is the substance of the game, but she's just this kind of companion throwing me ammo and stuff. I, I think by being first person, you're sort of removed from any sort of well, emotional hook. And 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 I think also it, it's it it just occurred to me that I've never played a game that was so thematically about choice and guilt over over choice, maybe guilt over the wrong decisions that gives you basically no choice. Um, you, it's it's interesting that they actually removed some, at least some of the the moralistic choices, which granted were kind of lame in the original Bioshock, but they actually scaled that back, even while even while ramping up the the the, the story's thematic concepts of of choice and, and guilt and what can happen if you do one thing versus what can happen if you do another. I, I think that though, Andy, was a bit of a cerebral. Uh, gimmick that the writers wanted to do. It, ultimately, I think Bioshock Infinite is about predestination. Uh, mm-hmm. is, is about a, a sort of predetermined fate mm-hmm. rather than choice. And the choices, because there are a few of them in the game, and they're, they're kind of jokes, I think, uh, right. because they don't make any difference. Um, and I think they're there to kind of trick you and needle you. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, I, I, I understand why they stepped back from that idea of making choices. Um, And again, after Bioshock 2, where the choices were huge, and by the time you get to the end of the game and you realize the impact of your choices and the choices get increasingly murky and less about am I a good guy or am I a bad guy Mm -hmm. and become more about do I believe in revenge or forgiveness, um, you know, the, the impact and the emotional hook of the choices in Bioshock 2 was immense. So to suddenly turn it into a kind of an intellectual gimmick in Bioshock Infinite mm-hmm. just felt a little weird. But I did. I think I did appreciate the point they were trying to make with them. Right. I, um, I, and I have to say, Bioshock Infinite is, is is quite possibly the best made video game I've ever played. Um, just in terms of the craft that they, you know, the craft of the game. I, I'm now not sure explain. That I, yeah. Can you elaborate on that? Would you uh, like, uh, like? Do you just mean the the, the visuals, the sound, the what, what? Every yeah. I mean, every piece of it. Uh, everyone who who worked on that game deserves a giant raise um, <laughs> because they are all absolute masters of their craft. Do a, is it as um, is it as fresh? Does it make me think about video games in a new way? Do I think it, they all hang together well? Uh, you know, Bioshock Infinite is def or Bioshock, the original Bioshock is definitely more than the sum of its parts. Bioshock Infinite might be less than the sum of its parts because the parts are so damn good. All of the parts are so good. Um, but it, it, it probably, for me at least, uh, doesn't, doesn't end up in my pantheon of games that I'll always look back to as a, as a touchstone or a, a, a historical beat um, when, when everything changed uh, in, to some extent the way I still feel that Bioshock 1 was, for me at least. 
You know, Andy, I, I certainly appreciate that, and I can agree in a way with what you're saying about uh, the, the craft that went into Bioshock Infinite. But increasingly what I look for in video games, and, and I'm not just blowing smoke at you, but part of what I, what I resonate with with a game like, um, like, like Monaco uh, is when a game can take elements and tie them together into a cohesive whole. You know, I, I don't need just good parts anymore. I need some sort of unity and artistic right. vision that unifies those parts. And if I don't have that, if that final step, which actually should probably be one of the first steps in making of a game, if, that, if that's not there, um, I, a game kind of bounces off of me. Um, and that was one of my big problems with Bioshock Infinite is I, I needed it to be tied together in the same way that the original Bioshock was. And it wasn't, and so therefore... It, it kind of is lost on me. Listen um, to us. We're like suburban moms complaining about this. <laughs> like, my wife just put up a meme today. She's my she's my wife has like just become a redditor like two two weeks ago or something like that. Right. And she's like making memes now. And so she's like she's like she put up a suburban mom that's like I'm going to I'm going to La Jolla today alone because all my friends are working. <laughs> Uh, well, I think we are very lucky to get to hang around and kvetch about something as important. As video games. Yeah. But you know what, though, Andy, I, I do want to say, like, I I love where video games are going, just as as a medium, as an artistic medium. And I personally, I don't think video games are art. That's silly, and I don't even care to talk about that. Video games are entertainment. They have artistic elements. But as a as a medium of entertainment, I couldn't be more thrilled with with where video games are going, They're and going with the fact. Where? They're going everywhere, and we can have conversations like this, and I love that. I love that we can look at a, at a spectacular piece of work like Bioshock Infinite and care about something like, does it fit together narratively with the gameplay? I mean, that's, that's just an awesome... I couldn't have done that back in the 90s, yeah, you know? Yeah, sure. We had Doom back then. What are you going to say? Right. <laughs> so... Uh, all right, so uh, there you go, Andy. We all had uh, two games of the week, um, a little 10 million, a little DJ Max Tune Technica, and a little, wait, Gloom or Bioshock Infinite was your pick? Gloom oh, was your yeah. pick. Yeah, so good. Uh, Andy, what uh, what is in the works? So you, you've submitted the, uh, the 360 version for Monaco. We can hopefully see that soon. Um, surely you're thinking about things like where you're going next. You mentioned doing a prototype for another site. Is this something that might be a full game? I don't think that'll be. That's not going to be the next big thing from Pocket Watch. No, this is just it'll. This is just something that you know. Sometimes you come up with a little concept that you think would be a lot of fun, and uh, you never know. I mean, Monaco was started. Monaco was just a little concept that I thought would be fun. Um, uh, we are going to be launching the the level editor, uh, as, as I mentioned. Um, we are definitely still expanding on the content um, of Monaco. Um, and uh, and but we do have ideas for something bigger that we have so far are you know really just sort of occupy our, our walks to the coffee shop. Um, <laughs> but uh, but we've been we've definitely been talking we've been talking about this concept now for months. So it is something that we're um, starting to get pretty excited about. But I don't think we're quite ready to talk about it yet. Uh, when you do DLC characters for Monaco, yes, so I'm, I'm guessing that will be next. Um, McMaster, do you have any requests for DLC characters in Monaco? Um, something that explodes. <laughs> oh, yeah, like a, bo- a mad bomber, an anar- the anarchist. If I, I, I like could, your thinking. If I could give you uh, the inside man, a cop 
who can shoot players but can also act can, you can they can choose to either be a good guy or a bad guy uh, would that interest you? Oh, oh Jesus! Yes. And, oh, Andy yes. just Andy just made Monaco a PvP game. Oh God, <laughs> I love this. Andy, get off get off Skype already and go make that for pizza. <laughs> that is awesome. That Inspector, is awesome. Inspector Voltaire is the one that I would really like to do next. Um, he's a uh, he's the character that sort of narrates the second story, and uh, I would love to add him to the game. Uh, awesome. It's like a, a trader mechanic. I love that. That's awesome, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, Andy, thank you so much for hanging out. This has been really fun to, to talk to you, and congratulations on Monaco. I mean, thank you, you. you're probably even more tickled than I am with it. Uh, oh, you bet, yeah. Well, tickled, tickled puking. <laughs> don't, don't tell it. <laughs> so, uh, McMaster, what are we bringing folks next week? Uh, I believe probably games of the week at least. And, this, and next week also we'll be talking about a game that might make you hungry. So how's that for A little. Yeah. Uh, so uh, join us for that. I am Tom Chick. I've been here with Jason McMaster and Andy Schatz. Thanks for hanging out with us, and we will see everyone next Oh, the shark has pretty teeth. And he shows them curly white, just a jackknife.